Well, our journey through the 12 prophets, we call the minor prophets, brings us today to Obadiah. In first service, I apologize to the class teachers because um, I knew that I was going to steal some of their thunder. You know, normally what I do is I, I read through the book and look at the curriculum. And since in the fall we teach and preach from the same scriptures, and I'd say, okay, here's what they're going to say, so I'll go to a different place in the book. Well, there's a problem with Obadiah. There's not a different place in the book. So I'm going to apologize to those of you who are in class because you will hear some of the same things that your teacher brought out of Obadiah. But then again, repetition is a good instruction method, isn't it? So maybe, you know, if we hear it a couple of times, and this way you can check me out. And uh, if your teacher agreed with what I say, then your teacher was right. Okay? Let's be standing, please. As we hear the first few verses of Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise up and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Word of God. I do enjoy watching football. I like to watch it on television and notice several things about a televised game. One is that they like to show uh, shots of the crowd as people are cheering for their team. And so you've all seen it. The camera will pan over the crowd. And what happens when people realize that they're on television? Well, yeah. And one signal they almost always give, or at least in a shot, at least two or three people are going like this, right? Right. We're number one. We're number one. Now, it doesn't matter if their team is two and six on the season. They're still number one, right? Because that's what we want to be. We, we want to be known as number one. Well, the good news is, is that Obadiah is number one. If you make a list of the shortest books in the Old Testament, then Obadiah is number one. Of course, that also makes him number 39 if you're talking about the longest books of the Bible. We're going to put the spin on it and let Obadiah have his moment of glory. He's number one. 291 Hebrew words. That's it. You know, that's, that's all Obadiah left behind. Now, we're sure he said a lot more than that. But as far as what got written down for us to remember, 291 words, so brief and yet, if we take the time to listen to what Obadiah had to say, he spoke not only an important message to the people of his day, but he still speaks an important message to us as well. You know, we don't know much about Obadiah. In fact, we don't even know for sure that we know his name. You say, well, Tommy, you just said it was Obadiah. Well, maybe that might be his name, although the word Obadiah means servant of the Lord. 
And since whenever things were written down in Hebrew, the words were all crammed up against each other, there are no capital letters. We don't know if Obadiah is a name or if it's a description, if it's just describing this faithful servant of the Lord that God called to come and to speak to his people at this particular time. So, even though we have a short book, even though we're not real sure that we know the guy's name that gave it to us, we do at least know from the context of the book when he lived and what he was talking about. Obadiah evidently lived at a very critical juncture of the, of the history of, of Jewish people, of, of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. He evidently lived during that time, which was about 586 B.C., when this huge, massive Babylonian empire swallowed up the little country of Judah, and the army of the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, tore it down, burned it to the ground, and looted whatever valuables that they could find. Now, since Obadiah was alive at that time, he has some contemporaries that we know about. One of them was Jeremiah. And uh, Jerusalem wasn't that big of a city. And having two prophets like Obadiah and Jeremiah in the same city, you know they knew each other. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to listen to some of their conversations? We know pretty surely that they talked to each other because they stole each other's sermons. If you read Jeremiah carefully, you'll find bits of Obadiah in it. Now, we don't know who was borrowing from whom, but evidently there was some communication there. However, unlike Jeremiah, Jeremiah was forced against his will to leave Jerusalem before it actually collapsed and fell. Obadiah seems to have been there and seems to have experienced this terrible terrible disaster. Now, it's hard for us to really grasp what that experience was like, to have your city totally destroyed, especially whenever your faith and your belief was that this Jerusalem was the city of God, and to have it totally destroyed, the temple desecrated, everything burned, all the things carried away, people slaughtered in the streets, Some of the people carried off into exile. The horror that Obadiah experienced on that day. Probably the best way for us to kind of relate is most of us in this room, although it's as time goes by, we're having a generation come up that we can't even say this about. But most of us in this room remember 9-11. And we remember sitting in front of the television and watching the World Trade Centers collapse, and the horror and the anguish that we felt for the loss of life and and how we were being violated in this act. Now, if you happen to be someone who is actually standing there in New York City, and that huge dust cloud came washing over you, then perhaps you might begin to identify with some of the feelings and the intensity of the feelings of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, out of all these things he experienced in the fall of Jerusalem, one thing really stuck in his crawl. Is that a good expression? One thing just burned in his heart. 
Out of everything else that he experienced, the one thing he just couldn't get over was the behavior of the Edomites. And that caused him to go out and to begin or to continue or to give us these words of prophecy as he began prophesying that the Edomites would be punished for what they did. Well, quickly, who are the Edomites? I left my little clicker over here. Let me go get it. Most of you realize that the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. I need Savannah in here today. Uh, Savannah was in first service, and she told us the whole story, all right? But most of you know that story of how Jacob and Esau fought with each other and, and the sibling rivalry that was there. Now, of course, their story ended up fairly well. If you read toward the end of their story, as they grew up and matured, then they were able to reconcile and forgiveness was offered. But the people of Edom and the people of Judah remained kind of in that sibling rivalry mode. And to make matters worse, the Edomites lived right next door to the, to the people of Judah. So imagine a relative that you don't get along with living right next door to you, okay? And you kind of have that thing going on between these two groups. Now, Edom was called Edom because Edom means red. And of course, Esau kind of meant red too. It meant hairy, really. But, uh, but Edom was named after Esau, but also after the red land. Their dirt was red clay. And it, you, you all have all seen land that has such a red color to it. Well, that's Edom. And Edom was a cliff, cliff and, and ridges and mountainous area. And so the people built their homes. You can see sort of some of the carvings back in there. Uh, in the land, in the, the area of Edom. And this is uh, how they felt in, in, invulnerable. They just felt like no one could to defeat them. This, are, this is a picture from Petra, which is in the ancient land of uh, Edom. is known now as one of the seven wonders of the modern world, as that people go and explore these marvelous structures that were built into the cliffs of Edom. And that's why Obadiah talks about them feeling like since you live up in the cliffs, you think nobody can touch you, that, that you are safe from anything. But he had a word for them, a word that, uh, from the Lord. Now, the reason that he was really so upset with them is not only because they had had this long-standing uh, animosity between the two groups, uh, going all the way back to the time of Moses even. You know, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, uh, Moses was told and told the people that we're supposed to treat the Edomites nicely because they're kinfolk. And so to get into the promised land, they needed to go through Edom. That was the, the most direct route. So they very nicely went and asked the Edomites, can we go through your land to get to the land of Canaan? To which the Edomites said, no. All right. And there you go. It just goes on and on. And incident after incident, war after war. But here in the fall of Jerusalem, 586, what they did, Obadiah said, could not be passed over. And what did they do? Well, they aligned themselves with the Babylonians, which was a smart political move. You know, here comes the big bully through your country. Make friends with the big bully. Well, not only did they align themselves with Babylonia, 
but they accompanied the army of Babylon, of, of Babylon into Jerusalem and were there witnessing all that was going on. And they gloated over it and made fun of the Jews as their land was destroyed. They looted, ran down the streets, smashing windows, grabbing those televisions, you know. Anything that they could grab and take with them out of Jerusalem, they took. And to make, you know, probably the worst thing they did, when some of the Jews would be getting out of the city and escaping the Babylonian army, the Edomites would go round them up and take them and turn them back in to the Babylonians. Do you see why Obadiah, you know, how this would be such a strong feeling within him as to what they had done? Jeremiah talks about it too. And even the people who left Jerusalem were carried into Babylon. They remembered it and wrote a song about it. And the song is written in our songbook, Psalm 137. And in fact, a few years ago, many years ago, uh, a popular song came out of this. It goes like this, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we cried. You know, this is what they're, they're singing about having been pulled out of Jerusalem, watching their city destroyed. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, there we cried when we thought about our beloved Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. Because our captors were saying to us, we should sing a song. Our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, hey, sing us one of those songs about Jerusalem. Just rubbing it in the best they could. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And listen to this verse. Remember, O Lord, those Edomites on the day that Jerusalem fell and how they stood there and said, tear it down, tear it down. That would be hard to forget, wouldn't it? To have this chorus of people as you are suffering and people you know are dying. Your city is on fire and these people are chanting, tear it down. Okay, we can understand why Obadiah is upset with the Edomites. But even though we can be upset with them too, it's not a real strong passion of ours that the Edomites get their just dues. So what are we going to do with Obadiah and his message? Well, I believe that if we read it carefully, we can get several lessons out of Obadiah. But today I want to emphasize three things that come from this book that I think we can carry home with us and that we can use to help us in our daily lives. So three quick lessons from Obadiah. Number one, Obadiah shares with all of the prophets this basic message that how we relate to other people is important to God. That when God judges us as a person, he looks primarily at how we treat other people, how we relate to them, what we say to them, all those interpersonal relationships that we have in our day. Now, we knew this before the prophets even came along because the Ten Commandments, out of the Ten Commandments, how many of them deal with how we treat one another? Maybe six of the ten, you know? 
you got four that, 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 that deal, is it seven of the ten? Someone count. Anyway, a bunch of them, <laughs> most of them deal with how we treat our parents, how we treat our spouse, how we treat our neighbors. You know, that, that's what God is looking at. It's how we relate to one another. And then when Jesus came along and brought us the new covenant, he just continued all of that and not only continued it, but intensified it. He said, you know, under the old law, you were said, don't kill someone. But I tell you, don't live in anger with someone. Don't let that anger just stay in you and to to hate them. Don't hate them. And he says that we should do that with the people who are closest to us. We should also do that with people who are strangers to us. Even we should treat people with respect who are our enemies. And particularly, as the prophets point out over and over and over again, and Jesus points out too, that we are to learn to deal with and to help and to be concerned about the poor. It is a great temptation for people who are not poor to dismiss those who are. To maybe just simply occasionally throw a scrap and feel good. Perhaps maybe to look at them and say it's their own fault. Even to come up with the idea that, well, if we help them, it'll just encourage them and they'll just be more dependent on us, you know. You come up with all kinds of reasons not to help the poor. And yet... Israel was judged because they came up with excuses rather than doing it. And that judgment still stands with us today. In 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John really boils it down when he says, You know, you say you love God, and that's good. But you've never seen God, and you want to love God, and you, you, but it's hard to, to know how to love an invisible God. But what you need to do is to learn to love those whom God has made visible, his children, his creation. And therefore, by loving them, you love God. And the love that you show to them, you show to God. God's people have always been judged by how they relate to each other. And that judgment remains today. The second lesson we notice is that sinful behavior cannot be hidden, nor can it be ignored. In, in Obadiah chapter, oh, uh, chapter, chapter 1, chapter only, verse 15, Obadiah says this, For the day of the Lord is near against all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. A basic principle of God's justice is that rebellion and sinful behavior cannot just go away. We may want it to. We may just say, well, I'm going to pretend I didn't do that. But it's there. And it will come back. Sinful behavior cannot be hidden forever. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, this haunting phrase is given. You can be sure of this one thing. Your sins will find you. Jesus talked about that on the last day, the things that we thought we did in secret and no one knew about will be trumpeted from the rooftop. 
So what do we do about this? All of us have sinned. All of us have things in our past and in our lives that we don't want everyone to know about. All of us have things that we want God to not think about. The only thing that can be done for our sinfulness is to receive the mercy and grace of God. And that's not the same thing as God just ignoring it. The mercy and grace of God cost him his son. It was what he worked on all through human history. It has been his great endeavor to do what was necessary to come to the point where he can forgive us and grant us the mercy that we so desperately need. So therefore, since we can't ignore our sinfulness, we have to take it to God and receive, especially now, through the blessing of the sacrifice of his son, the mercy and the grace that we need to live. Now, the third lesson is pride is the most deadly sin. And let me tell you very quickly, this is the great context to hear this in, because that's tied with the point right above it. Pride is the most deadly sin because pride is the one thing that can cut us off from the mercy and the grace of God. Because when we are people of pride, we don't need his help. We can handle it ourselves. Now, pride is an interesting word because, or a concept. One, one reason it's so, so difficult is that pride is not the sin of the ones that we think of as terrible sinners in this life. Pride is not necessarily the sin of the rapist or the, the murderer. Pride is the sin of the successful. Pride is the sin of those who are trying really hard to honor God. Pride can be the sin of those who do the most for the kingdom of God. Jesus gives us a wonderful example of that, which we'll look at in just a moment. And another thing that's hard about pride is that there is a good way to talk about pride. You know, to go up and pat someone on the back and say, I am so proud of you. Uh Uh-oh, you've got pride. No, well, that's not exactly what we're talking about, is it? We're just saying this is a good person and we're, we're encouraging them. Or we, we have people tell us, take pride in your work, you know. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's good too. But the kind of pride that kills us, the kind of pride that separates us from the mercy and the grace of God, the kind of pride that the Edomites had and Obadiah condemned, is the kind of pride that thinks of ourselves first and judges everything that happens on how it affects me and spends its time comparing myself to other people. Now, that's not the same thing as self-esteem. We we need to have good self-esteem. Self-esteem means that we look people in the eye, that we don't see others as, as less than us. We don't see others as better than us, but we see ourselves all as children of God. That, that's good self-esteem. But pride is when it all has to do with me. Now, how do we know if we have that disease? How do we, as as good Christian folks, find out whether or not that that this deadly sin has crept in when we have battled all the other sins? We've gotten this sin out of our life. We got that sin out of our life. You know, we've really tried hard, 
And now, how can we find out if pride has sort of come in the back door? Well, I read an interesting pride exam, and I want to share it with you. Four little brief questions. You're not going to have to answer verbally, and I won't share my answers either, okay? Question one on the pride test. Does it irritate you when someone corrects you? Points out something that you have done that wasn't done quite right? Does that kind of gall you a little bit? Do you become defensive? Try to prove that, yes, I am right? Is that your first thought? All right. Question two. Do you have your feelings hurt when your contribution or your work or what you have done isn't recognized like you thought it should be? Maybe someone else gets the credit for something that you really did. How deeply does that wound you? Question three. Do you take pleasure and find just a little delight when the people you don't like have problems? When things get a little rough for those folks, do you kind of just have to smile a little? And question four, do proud and prideful people just drive you crazy? (laughs) Look at that person. Who does he think he is? C.S. Lewis warned us that the pride of another person can only offend your own pride. Do you see why pride is so dangerous? I told you Jesus told a story about pride and one that really catches us up short, I think, and bothers me a little bit. It's a story of two people who went in to pray. Remember that story? One was a Pharisee and one was a publican. Now, we don't know Pharisees and publicans. That doesn't communicate too well. But basically, the Pharisee was a great guy. I mean, he did things right. And in his prayer, he points out to God that he does them right. And he compares himself to some other folks and says, I'm so glad. And aren't you glad, God, I'm not like that. And the publican was a terrible person. He was a thief. He was a traitor. He was immoral. But the one thing he did right was he asked for the mercy and grace of God. He knew he needed it. He knew that that would be the only way that he could be right with God again. As he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm grateful for Obadiah pointing out these things because it makes me aware once again what a great price God has paid so that I can look up to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And know that his mercy and his grace flow into my life. And that his mercy and grace can forgive even my proud heart. Obadiah warned the Edomites that they would get theirs. That warning still stands. We'll get ours. But if we have wrapped ourselves in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ... What we'll get is what he earned for us. Let's stand and sing.